If you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we begin a new series of messages uh, this morning from the letter that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And we begin this morning with chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. Here's the good news this morning. You are not alone in your faith. You are not alone in your faith. Now I write that to you, I say that to you this morning because it is true and it is going to be one of the themes that we find throughout the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. You are not alone in your faith. And I want you to hold on to that truth. I want you to write that truth down. I want you to know that truth. But just for a moment, let's do just a little imagination for a moment if we could. Imagine if overnight this evening that all of the pastors in town left town. And with them at the same time, all of the staff members left town. All of the Sunday school teachers left town. Basically anyone that's been an instructor to you in the word of God left town. And what if when you got up tomorrow morning that you drove around town and you could not find a single church building? There were no set-aside edifices to build up your faith, to organize the church, to gather the church. And in fact, when you did a Google search of churches near me, it said no results possible. How would you respond to that? What would happen inside of your faith and your journey and your walk with God if all of a sudden those folks that had been your instructors, your teachers, your mentors were suddenly gone? The buildings did not exist and there was no such thing as a church near me. How would that impact your faith short term? How would that impact your faith long term? Let me add one more piece to that. What if that didn't happen tonight? But that happened in the first three months that you became a believer in Christ. Those earliest days when you were most vulnerable, when you were most needing to learn and to understand and to be taught, how would you have handled that? What would have been your chances of survival? Now, the truth is it's really hard to solve those questions and answer those questions and try to figure that out for ourselves and say, I don't know, maybe I would get stronger, maybe I would get weaker, maybe I'd struggle for a while and then I'd figure some things out, maybe I would just walk. It's really hard for us to kind of speculate and to guess what would happen there. But but what I'm going to tell you is that the example that I just gave you is the church in Thessalonica. In the opening weeks, maybe at the most months, They were gone. All of the leadership were gone. There was no structure in place. And all of a sudden, they're just left there. And Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica because he wants to know, are you still there? Are you okay? Are you hanging in there? Let me give you some encouragement. It's going to be all right. You are not alone in your faith. We're going to be spending the time looking at this letter, but before we take the time in the letter, I want us to kind of look at the origin story of the church in Thessalonica. 
Uh, the church in Thessalonica is where Paul goes to after he leaves uh, Philippi. The, the church is about, the, the city of Thessalonica in Paul's day is about 200,000 people. That's a pretty good size city. It's a good size city. It would be a good size city today. In fact, the city of Thessalonica still exists today. You, you can hit them up on TripAdvisor, uh, see what kind of places, what kind of things there are to do. There are some museums. And I, I kind of looked it up. It looked like a good vacation spot to go to. It's an existing city today. It has a, a, a really strong soccer team uh, that plays in the Champions League every once in a while. It's a real deal place. So let's take a look at what happens when the gospel, the message of Jesus arrives in Thessalonica for the first time. For to do that, we're going to go back to the passage that we read a few minutes ago there in Acts chapter 17. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Acts chapter 17. What we find here in Acts chapter 17 is that the message of Jesus was completely unexpected. The message of Jesus was completely unexpected. Now you see what Paul does is what his normal routine is, that he arrives in a city and he probably skips over the two towns that are mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 1 because they didn't have a synagogue. He's just kind of moving along and when he gets to Thessalonica, it's the first city that has a synagogue. A synagogue gives him a forum, a place, an avenue for him to begin to talk about Jesus. He can begin to talk about the Old Testament word with people that already believe in the Old Testament word. It gives them a starting point. They already believe many of the same things. And Paul is there to tell them, listen, I've got the answer to the rest of the questions that you've been wondering about. And so he starts there with a synagogue. And it tells us that he shares in the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths. Now, I love what it says that Paul does there in the Sabbath. It tells us that he, it tells us that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I love that. I love that when Paul says, listen, let me tell you about what I believe, he does it by reasoning from the Scriptures. It tells us that he explains and proves why the Messiah must suffer and be raised again, and that that Messiah is Jesus. Now, I got to tell you, that's pretty good work. I love what Paul is doing there. I love the fact that when he comes to town and he wants to speak to them, he reasons from the Scriptures. He explains and he proves this is who Jesus is. I mean, really, what could go wrong with that kind of a plan. Wouldn't you want to lean into someone that is explaining from the Scriptures and reasoning from the Scripture and proving that this is who Jesus is? That's exactly what we would expect from a minister of the gospel, from someone that would come and speak to us, reason, explain, prove, rooted on the Word of God. I don't know how long Paul's first sermon series was, but he only got to week three. Because by the time they had heard him three weeks, three Sabbaths, they said, that's enough. And they threw him out of the Sabbath. And we're going to see it actually gets a little bit messier uh, right after that. But they stop listening. And there becomes a rejection of Paul's teaching. 
Now, what was it that Paul taught that was so difficult? What was it that Paul taught that was so controversial? Well, let's look back and think about what Paul told them. He said that the Messiah is known, that the Messiah must suffer, and that the Messiah would be raised again, and that the Messiah was Jesus. Someplace inside of that message, people lost their mind. Now, I look back at that, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? As I read that, the emphasis, the place where the struggle happens is when Paul tells them the Messiah must suffer. I think it's a difficulty if Paul were to say the Messiah might suffer, the Messiah will suffer. But when he says the Messiah, the definition of what it means to be Messiah is that the Messiah is going to suffer. That was when the record scratched. That's when everything says, whoa, what is that? Because the problem is, if we're going to follow the Messiah, and the Messiah is the answer, the Messiah is the key, the conclusion of everything, then that's who we're going to follow, and we're going to become like that. And when Paul began to speak about a Messiah who suffered, that just didn't fit into their mental comprehension. You see, what they were looking for, what they wanted was a Messiah who was a battering ram, who would knock down and defeat all of their enemies, that would make things right, that would even the score for all the people who had done them wrong. We need a Messiah that will set things right and knock down all of the people who are standing in the way. And when Paul describes Jesus' ministry and how Jesus fulfills the role of Messiah, what he describes sounds like a punching bag and not a battering ram. And if the Messiah is going to be a punching bag, I don't want that kind of a Messiah. In fact, they would say, listen, in life, you're either the hammer or the nail. And you're describing a Messiah who is a nail, and I'm looking for a Messiah who's the hammer. They were so disturbed by this description of a Messiah who suffered, that they looked right past the fact that Paul says he suffered so that he would be raised from the dead. I think they were so disturbed about the disruption of their agenda and the kind of Messiah that they wanted, they didn't even hear that he was a Messiah that rose again. And it disturbs the entire congregation because it's not what they expected. And to be honest, it's not what they wanted. Now, just for a moment here, I have to insert a word of warning. This is the word of warning when we paint a picture of what we want God to do and be and agree with us that outranks the God and the Messiah and the agenda that he reveals. It remains a danger for us that we give God a commission and say, God, this is what I want you to do. And it runs on our preferences 
and our agendas. And we want a Messiah. We want a Jesus. We want a God. We want a faith that will be a battering ram against my enemies, against the people who have done me wrong, against the, the orders of this world that don't seem to line up the way that I want to. And whether it be politics or any other issue, when we ask Jesus to be the battering ram that settles the score for us, rather than listening to a God that was the suffering servant who took all the wrong in this world upon himself to free us from sin, then we run into the same danger of saying no to Jesus because he doesn't look and sound like the way I want him to sound like. Can you imagine being in that room hearing from Paul himself just a handful of years after the resurrection, say, yeah, I'm not interested. That's, that's not really what I'm looking for. Because the message of Jesus was completely unexpected. But I would also tell you, and this is really, really great, the message of Jesus was irresistible for many. The message of Jesus was irresistible for many. You see, we, we have this tension that's happening here that many of the people in the synagogue, many of the original hearers say, nope, we're done, get out of here, we're not interested, don't bring this in here anymore. But the Word tells us in Acts chapter 17 that there were some in that synagogue that said, you know what? That does match with what I've read and studied in the Word of God. I do see that. I do believe that. That fits everything that the Word says, and I believe that. And so even in that synagogue that turned hard on Paul, there were some who believed because the message of Jesus is irresistible. But what I love there is it tells us that the devout Greeks... And maybe that is describing two different words, the, the God-fearers and the Greeks, the people in the community, the people in the marketplace, and not a few of the leading women of the town. They also believed. It's almost as though they were eavesdropping outside of the synagogue. Paul was speaking to the synagogue, but these Jews, these Gentiles who did not belong to the synagogue, they were just kind of leaning in and listening, and maybe they were. But I think there's also an element that, man, when Paul was teaching in that synagogue, everyone walked out and they're like, can you believe what he said? Did you hear what he said? I'm thinking about what he said. And people would begin to hear the conversation that was happening there. Not only that, but, but the Sabbath only happens once a week. And so for the other six days, Paul actually spends his time in the marketplace living out his vocation as a tent maker, sets up a shop there in the market, repairs some tents, uh, mends some tents, probably sells some new tents, begins to make some connections. All, well, why are you here in town? Where did you come from? What do you do? And he begins to tell his story. And person after person after person becomes a believer in Jesus. Now, it's kind of interesting because there is an easy reason to understand, well, this is why they didn't like Jesus. But sometimes we wonder, well, okay, so why, why would somebody like Jesus? Scholars have spent a little bit of time trying to describe for us what the early church looked like and who made up the early church and trying to say, who are the people that were responding to Jesus in these days? One of the things that they noticed is that there were a lot of slaves 
that were part of the early church. When they give a list of people who are in the church and some of the letters, some of the people that they describe are slaves. And the message of Jesus resonated with those who were slaves. As slaves, they were cut off. As slaves, they were were isolated from their families. As slaves, they didn't have status. But in the church of Jesus, they were equals inside of that church. In the message of Jesus, what Paul is saying, that the Messiah, the one who's the key, the one who rose again, he was the suffering servant. He too was a servant. He too was a slave. And so the slaves of that culture leaned in and they said yes. The historians tell us that another big part of the early church were women. In fact, this passage of Scripture tells us that there were the the God-fearing Gentiles and not a few women, many of the women, leading women in that community. I think one of the things that was an attribute of the early church is the respect and the dignity that they gave to women in the early days. Particularly in a culture that looked right past women, that did not give value to women. The early church did, Jesus did. We talked last week about those circles of disciples that he had around them, and one of those main circles was a group of women. We told the story last week that when the story of the resurrection came, it first came on the lips of women who were the ones who heard. It was the women who said, this is true about Jesus, and they listened to the women. And there was a culture there that women said, this is a place that will see my life as valuable and worth something. And so not just a few of the leading women joined that place. There's another group of people that are early adopters to the message of Jesus, and they're called philosophers. There there was a a real think tank culture in that day. I mean, we're talking about Rome. We're talking about Athens. we're, We're talking about the days of the philosophers, people who were trying to solve the mysteries of life. And some of those people trying to solve the mysteries of life began to hear about the story of Jesus, who was in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things that were created were created in Him and through Him and would not exist in this day if it was not for Him. And as they try to solve the problems of sin and evil and goodness, they began to hear in Jesus the very solutions to the questions that they'd been arguing and thinking about and seeking for generations. And what we find is that the second generation of Christian writers after the Gospels and the Epistles are not self-help books, but they are the believer philosophers that says, let me tell you how all of this fits together in Jesus. And that's who leans in and finds the Gospel irresistible. We also find that inside of the early churches are people of prominence and significance and wealth, and some of them are politically connected. In fact, again, when you see at the end of some of these letters, it says, and so-and-so's household, and the leader of so-and-so's household, and some of them are, are, are members of Caesar's household. These are people who had access to everything in life and had probably tried just about everything in life and come up empty until they found Jesus, who filled needs in their life that they had tried to fill in just about every other way. And so they leaned in and they believed because they had tried everything else. 
And then for the man and the woman on the street, just the regular dude and dudette. That's Greek. Uh, the, the regular dude and dudette. What they found is that the message of Jesus brought light into darkness. They had struggled under spiritual captivity. They had struggled dealing with the forces of darkness that were so prevalent in their world. When Jesus shows up, he brings freedom from that darkness. Not only that, at the core of the message is that Jesus brings forgiveness for our sins and our broken places in our lives. And as you look back and try to figure out what do I do with all of that junk? As you look at these moments in your life, as you look at today and say, what do I do with these broken parts of life? The message of Jesus is they're forgiven because he suffered and died on our behalf. And let me tell you, in the city of Thessalonica, they found Jesus irresistible. And let me tell you that people, men and women, boys and girls, in this hour, in this day, in this year, continue to find Jesus irresistible. Because whether you are a person who feels excluded from society, whether you feel like people overlook you, whether you have been trying to look for the answers all of your life, whether you're dealing with brokenness, whether you are looking for a place to fit in, to belong, whether you have tried everything else throughout all of your success, Jesus is irresistibly the answer to the thing that you've been looking for. It was true then. It's been true every day since. And it'll be true tomorrow. And it may be that you're looking for Jesus right now. And there's a pull on your life that you're finding irresistible. And my challenge to you is to say yes. Even in this day. And I would also tell you that you've got friends and neighbors that when you look across the street, they may look completely uninterested. But let me tell you, they are people that when they hear the message of Jesus, they will respond. The message of Jesus was irresistible to many. But I also have to tell you that the message of Jesus <laughs> shook up everything and everyone. Man, Jason. Did you see Jason here? Take a good look at Jason here. He doesn't appear before this. He doesn't appear after this. This is Jason. But all of a sudden in this little section here in Acts chapter 17, the whole story shifts to Jason. Jason is in his house one day, and a mob comes to his house and says, Is Paul and Silas here? Uh, no, they're not here. Can I take a message? Fine, you'll do. And they rip him out of his house, drag him through the streets, and take him in front of the magistrates. I kind of wonder if you're one of Jason's neighbor and you were out of town for like a couple of months. And as you're coming back in town, there's all this noise, there's all of this rabble, there's all of this stuff going, what on earth is going on? Well, what's going on down there at the courthouse? There's a riot, there's a mob outside. Who, who's in there? Jason. Like, Jason, my neighbor? Yeah, that, that's Jason. Yeah, I think you live next door to him. 
Well, what did he do? It's not really clear. He, he just started talking about Jesus. Man, if you've been out of town and, and, and missed this, what about Jason's family? Like, our Jason? Well, what, 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 what happened to him that, that he got dragged through the streets, drugged through the streets? He was forcefully carried through the streets. And he's there on trial. What, what, what happened to him? And his family's like, well, that doesn't even make sense. Well, you think if his neighbors were confused, <laughs> and you think that his family was confused? Imagine Jason. <laughs> it's like all I said is they weren't home. Uh, they, they came looking for Paul and Silas, and I said they're not here. Man, just think about this. This is probably weeks, maybe months, but it may lean closer to the side of weeks. Since he had heard the story of Jesus and believed that Jesus was the answer and made a commitment that said, I want my life to be connected to Jesus. I want to live under his grace and under his authority. A pretty simple decision. And all of a sudden, he's got the dust of the streets all over him. The whole community is staring at him. And there's a judge with a gavel and a robe staring at him with a very unpleasant face. Like, what happened? I think you and I are used to the experience when someone says yes to Jesus. That we give them a great big hug. We give them a card for their baptism. We go out to eat to Olive Garden and breadsticks for everybody. To man, welcome to the family of God. Isn't this great? And for many of us, that, that was our experience, wasn't it? But the truth is that there are some of you that that wasn't your experience. There are some of you that when you said yes to Jesus, it actually made some relationships more difficult than it was before. And the people who were closest to you did not celebrate that with you. And so you can kind of relate a little bit to what Jason feels like. Man, all I did is said yes to Jesus because I believed that this was true for my life. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my world gets turned upside down. <laughs> and I'm being blamed for the destruction of the city. <laughs> Jason pays some fees. Maybe it's bail. Maybe it's a bribe. Maybe whatever it is. He has to rearrange his life. Where did that come from? Like, man, I just said yes to Jesus. I'm pretty sure that when Jason finally gets home, puts some ice, I don't know where you get ice in Thessalonica in the first century, but, but, but when you just kind of, oh my goodness, I'm going to call Paul tomorrow, and I'm going to get an appointment. I, what has this got to do with Jesus? What has this got to do with my faith? Someone's going to have to explain this to me. And that very night... Because of the uproar in the city, Paul and Silas get sent out of town under the cover of darkness, and they move on to the next town. <laughs> now what? Now what for Jason? Now what for the rest of Jason's family? Now what for those Jews that believed for those God-fearing Greeks that believed, for not those few leading women of the city that believed. 
what? Paul writes them a letter and says, you are not alone in your faith. He writes them a letter and he says, grace to you and peace in the name of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not alone in your faith. That church who's had a whirlwind happen to them. When Paul writes to them, grace and peace. Don't you think that was like a feast in the middle of a famine? Don't you think that was cold water in the middle of a drought? Grace and peace to you. You are not alone in your faith. We don't say it enough, but the reality is that sometimes your commitment to Christ, your faith in Jesus, actually brings hardship and difficulty to your life. We probably get it wrong. Because a lot of times we say, listen, if you say yes to Jesus, it's like a birthday cake every day the rest of your life. But, but that's not what it says. There's no place, there's no place in Scripture that would give you this idea that, listen, say yes to Jesus and troubles just disappear. Here's the crazy thing. Say yes to Jesus and sometimes you get some brand new troubles that you never even had before. Ask Jason. He was having breakfast. They ripped him out of his house. The passage, the sermon series is called The Struggles and Joy of Fresh Faith. I really wanted it to be the joy and struggle of fresh faith because I wanted to be positive. That's the kind of guy that I am. But the text, the letter, repeatedly talks about affliction. And it talks about affliction before it talks about joy. And sometimes that's our experience, isn't it? The affliction comes before the joy. Now trust me, trust me, you are not alone in your faith. And the joy is there. But right now, some of you are experiencing more hardship and struggle than you are experiencing joy. Maybe it's just been that kind of week. Maybe it's been six months. Maybe it's something that's unfolding in this very day. But let me give you the same words that Paul wrote to that church. Grace to you and peace. Anybody here hungry for grace and peace? We're going to do something we haven't done in a while, and that is we're going to open up the steps this morning. And I just want to invite you, if you're just at a place in your life today that you're hungry for some grace and some peace, maybe just come to the steps and just have a word of prayer down front here. And just say, God, I, I need that grace and peace that only comes from you. It's been a little bit rough 